we're going to be in John chapter 13. Um, a big, a good big praise while you're going there. Allison and I celebrated 21 years of marriage uh, this, this week. So that's um, that's pretty awesome for us. Uh, kind of, and I've said this before, and I still think it's funny when uh, the, the the pastor that married us, when Allison told him that she was pregnant, he said, "You guys can't be pregnant. Rick doesn't know he's married yet." <laughs> probably a little true, I guess. Yeah, uh, it's been pretty good. We we got to uh, on our on our we, we spent our honeymoon up in uh, Traverse City, and we were able to go back there this week and spend a few days in a little 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 two bit two room uh, condo, and it was very nice to just for her and I to get away and. Spend some time together and visit the pizza place we went to on our honeymoon and walk through downtown and see stuff. So it was pretty cool. Um, so we mentioned the Israel the, the Israel thing that's going on. And, and I've been, this has been something that's been on my mind for a while, but uh, what does it all mean uh, is the question I'm asking. Um, there's a lot of the Israel-Palestine conflict in the Middle East is is the single defining issue of our age. Um, there's really not much else that's more important. Yeah, North Korea is a problem. That's that's true. Uh, you know, billions of uh, Syrians storming their way through Europe. That's a problem. Uh, starvation in Africa. That's a problem. Hurricanes and the and the Bermudas is a problem. Fire, you know, fires and earthquakes in America is a problem. I guess there's snow in Texas, which is crazy. Um, but none of these things really compare to what is going on in the heart of Israel right now. Um, since so, I've done some research, and I really cannot understand all of it. It is it is so crazy. There's so much information going on. Um, but since Israel's declaration of independence in, in May 14, 1948, um, the United Nations has never regarded them as their own country. Um, Israel has two people who sit on the United Nations Council, but they're not allowed to vote for anything. Um, the if you ask an, an Israeli what, what their capital is, they will tell you Jerusalem. Uh, and they, will, they have said that since 1948. You ask anybody in the international community, America, Europe, Asia, Africa, you know, South America, any of these other countries, 200 some other some odd countries that are represented on the, on the United Nations board, none of them will tell you that the capital is Israel. But to an Israeli, the capital is always Jerusalem. Um, America has had its embassy, and most of the other countries in the world have their embassies in Tel Aviv, um, which is probably the safest thing to do if you're uh, if you're concerned about safety. Um, rockets being fired into Israel from Hamas is less likely to hit 
people in Tel Aviv than they are to hit people in Jerusalem. So for when President Trump has done what he has done and he has declared, as he promised, that the capital of Israel is Jerusalem, he is doing something that no American president has ever done before. They've all promised it, but they've never done it. Uh, and a lot of people are really upset about it in America, which... Uh, and, you know, the, I was, I've been following some stuff on Facebook and people are going, oh, well, now any hopes of peace are gone because of this. And, uh, and I made the comment on Facebook that um, inside Israel, there are no hopes for peace as long as Israelis live in Israel. And that's really the bottom line. And this is just the bottom line for Hamas and, and Palestinians. The Palestinians, they, they want peace. And to them, peace equals no Israelis, <laughs> no Israelites. They don't want them around at all. So they would be just as happy to have no Israelites in Palestine, uh, in their, what they call their land. So it's this big conflict, and, and Israel has always been very willing to make peace and to try peace treaties, and Palestine has always said no. They won't just come out and say, we just, it's not that we don't want peace, we just don't want you. And, but that is their stance. So as, as long as there is always going to be conflict in Israel, there have every day, you know, it, it's only about once every four or five weeks that CNN or Fox tells us, oh, Israel fired rockets into Gaza. Israel fired rockets into Jordan. Well, what they don't tell you is that rockets are always fired first into Israel. Israel doesn't just strike, they counter-strike. That's, that's always been their stance. Um, so I still say that Israel is one of the safest places on the planet <laughs> because God's hand is right there. Okay, He is right on it. He is watching that as the jewel, uh, his crown jewel. It's the apple of his eye, and there is nothing, anyone, presidential or otherwise, nothing any of them are going to be able to do to thwart his plan. And, and that, with that, we I just trust in God. Um, so, John chapter 13. <coughs> Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from the Father and was going to God, rose from the supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will afterward. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. 
And Jesus answered him and said, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. <clears throat> Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments, he sat down again and said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for time spent reading it and studying it and thinking about it. Uh, we thank you that it challenges us. And Lord, in regards to your word, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen? Amen. Has anybody in this room washed anyone's feet? It's an interesting experience. Um, very interesting experience. Uh, so, jumping in here. The previous 12 chapters uh, have encompassed... Uh, the first two years of Jesus' ministry, and Derek talked about this a little bit last week, all of the events from John chapter 13 to 21 take, part, take place in the last week of his life and his ministry. Um, John, being led by the Holy Spirit, devoted the larger portion of his gospel to the last week of Christ's life. Uh, and there's some really neat things going on. We're going to see a lot of stuff. Uh, we've kind of been... You know, I, I would have, it's, it's very, it would be very easy to go very, very slow through the Gospel of John, but we're kind of going at a good clip, and that, I think that's fine. But we could easily slow it down and really dig in and go crazy, um, but we're not going to. So, um, so I'm coming to you this week with the question, what does it mean to serve the Lord? the undertaking of expelling our energy uh, to help another with no desire to receive any, anything back uh, can be a very empowering event in our life. There is a rejuvenation that comes from that kind of selfless service, especially when it comes in the form of doing for someone something they cannot do for themselves. And Jesus begins this last week of his earthly life uh, to show his disciples a series of services that they themselves could not do. He prays for them. He carries the cross for them. He, he dies in their place. And, he, and here he begins by washing their feet. So what does it mean to serve the Lord selflessly, ambitiously, and, and without an eye towards a prize or a reward? All of our acts of service in this life will face the firewall of heaven that tests our works, whether, we, whether they were for him or for us. Everything we do in this life will be tried by fire. We see that in Scripture. 
So let's look at the example of Jesus. Um, it says here in verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, um, one of the, if you're, if, I don't say, if you're paying attention to, to Scripture, you're going to see that there's a Passover here that they're doing. And, and then there's a, there's a verse that says, and they had to take him down from the cross because the Passover. And so the question is, is, well, was he crucified on the Passover or on the other? Or, or before or after? And there, there's a, there, it becomes, if you're looking at it really, really closely, it becomes easy to jumble the timeline. And as I've said before, there's, there's an indication that because the nation was still split between Judah and Israel, and it was still a north and southern kingdom, that it was possible that the northern kingdom celebrated the Passover on one day and the southern kingdom celebrated it on the day after, giving the, the disciples an opportunity to celebrate both. So it's very easy to be in one part of town celebrating Passover on Wednesday night or whatever it was, and then you could easily celebrate Passover the next day in the southern part of town. Just saying. So there's, there's a time jumble there. It uh, kind of that that piece of knowledge uh, from Arnold Buchenbaum's website uh, has kind of laid things out a little easier for me instead of going well it says this and it says that so is it a contradiction no I just don't understand the timetable so now that I understand the timetable things line up a little bit a little easier so verse one says some important things here and I you have to kind of slow down. When Jesus knew that his hour had come, that's one thing he knows. And he also knows that he should depart from this world to go to the Father. There's two, two, two things to know there, knowing that his time had finally come, that he would go to the Father, and that having loved his own, he loved them to the end. This verse indicates an importance to me about knowing why we're here and knowing what the timetable of events is. Up to this moment, Jesus has, has said to his mother at the, at the wedding of Cana, no, my, my time has not come. And there's other verses where he says, no, my time has not yet come. We see it in other Gospels, my time has not yet come. And all of a sudden, now, his time has come. And when his time has come, instead of doing a miracle, Instead of thwarting the Roman Empire, instead of uh, healing everything and feeding everything, what does he do the moment his time comes? He serves. <laughs> he serves. And that's a wonderful thing. Verse 2 here, and after the supper had, the, and supper being ended, and the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, um, it was customary for guests to have their feet washed as they entered the house. This was generally considered a chore for the, the truly the lowest of the servants. Uh, so it would be some young little boy that's making a penny a day or whatever, uh, a servant in the house, whose job it is to go to each guest and pull, you know, untie or unbuckle or whatever their sandals and take them and put them outside and, and probably tripped on the carpet. 
um, probably scrape them off and make them clean for them. So this is a big, a big, a big job. And uh, we remember that John the Baptist telling people that he was unworthy to untie the sandal straps of Jesus. And here Jesus is taking off the sandal straps and washing the crud of the world off of the disciples' feet. Filthy, dirty feet would have been seriously offensive during an intimate dinner setting as they were going to have. Um, you know, it's not like we imagine, you know, today we, we, people come into the house, they kick off their boots, throw them in the corner, and they sit around a big table and at the table and they sit in chairs. This wasn't what they were doing. Um, it's not like uh, Da Vinci's depiction of the Last Supper with Jesus sitting in the middle of a long table, all the disciples lounging around and pretty background and great columns and stuff. This is a this would be a low table, very low to the ground, and they would sit on the floor on pillows and cushions. And there's a lot of a lot of reclining going on. So there's there's, a, there's an intimacy going on here that we'll talk a little bit more about next week. So feet would have been in close proximity to things like food. So it's important to have some clean feet going on here. So the devil having already put it in Jesus' heart to betray Jesus, what, what I want to do today is I want to show two different things. We have Jesus doing this amazing act of service, and we have Judas doing something completely different. Um, Judas is going to play a very important role in Jesus' plan this final week. Uh, and I think it's important to know that it's very possible, given that Judas was Judas Iscariot, uh, Simon was the, Simon the Zealot, the Zealot. Um, some of these disciples quite possibly could have had ulterior motives, or maybe hopes and dreams for Jesus. Maybe they had things that they were hoping he would do. Uh, it's widely considered. Uh, accepted knowledge that Simon Peter, the reason he was carrying a sword at all in the Garden of Gethsemane was because he thought, in addition to guarding the door of the Passover, which was customary, that he went to the Garden to pray with Jesus and he carried a sword in possibly the hopes that the revolution would now start. You know, like, here, okay, here we go, we have a revolution. Because these guys were looking, the Jewish people wanted someone to overthrow Rome. That, that piece, let that piece of knowledge simmer back there in your mind for a bit. Jesus is remembered as a thief, a conspirator, a zealot, and ultimately the betrayer of the Lord. But had he not been among the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, he would not be remembered at all. Uh, you have to, I have to wonder who would have been used by Jesus had Judas not been the one. Would it have been somebody else? The fact is Judas was willing to do the things he did and to his own demise. And there is not one action or thought that Judas experienced that was outside the omniscience of God. God knew. Jesus knew what Judas was doing. He knew what he was about. He knew what his, he could read him and know what the plan was going to be. And he didn't counter it. He let it play out. Judas was passionate about what he felt about Jesus. Passionate, but wrong. And Jesus on, oh, Judas only saw what he wanted to see of Jesus. And what he saw 
bring in accordance to his own political and private agenda. And we all need to be careful, lest we fall into the trap of Judas as well, to not have our own agenda. Jesus came to fulfill his own purpose, not ours, not Judas's, not Simon's. We cannot approach Jesus with an agenda. This isn't a bargain. This isn't a contract. I'll give you this much of my life if you do this for me. It doesn't work that way. That's just not the arrangement. God's arrangement is, I've done it all. You say yes. And when we say yes, my hopes and dreams and expectations of what I need. Well, I want God to give me a new car and a bigger house, and I want this, and I want that, and he's going to deliver me from this. And, you know, and we're trying to crack that whip with the Lord. Okay, make this happen, and make this happen, and make this happen. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> we, we don't direct him. <laughs> we don't command him. We cannot force him to do things that are not in his will. And this is what led to Judas's demise, the real, realization that He tried to orchestrate events out of selfishness to have his own needs met. Judas realized that he not only was among, not only that he was wrong on all levels, and he believed that he caused the death of Christ. That's an important piece of information. He believed he caused the death. And we'll see this in a few chapters. And as Jim Keaton has said, if he only waited a few days after the crucifixion, everything would have been totally clear to him. Sometime before this evening, as it says here in verse 2, Satan had already put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. I, I look at that and I, and I have to think that, well, like Job, before Satan could do the things that God allowed to do to Job, Satan would have had to have permission to do anything or to put anything directly into Judas's heart. Okay? This is an extraordinary case in Scripture where God allowed a person to be used as a pawn on a chessboard of events. This is not an everyday thing. This is not a flippant event. People like to throw around the phrase, well, the devil made me do it. But the evidence in Scripture leads me to conclude that Satan himself isn't out there making us do anything. Scripture says we we are led astray when we are enticed by our own desires. Amen? Had had Judas not been willing, Satan couldn't have put anything into his heart. Uh, For anybody interested in doing some really crazy reading, C.S. Lewis has a, a book called The Screwtape Letters. Um, which is, uh, according to C.S. Lewis, this is what he calls teaching in reverse. Uh, screw tape letters are a series of letters, fictional, pure fiction, but it's a series of letters um, from, I forget what it is, uh, an arch tempter in the hierarchy, or what they call the lower archy of, of the kingdom of Satan. Uh, screw tape is writing letters to his cousin Wormwood. And uh, Wormwood is a, a, a tempter who's over an individual, and I forget the guy's John Hamilton, I think is his name. 
And so it's a series of conversations between Wormwood and Screwtape about John Hamilton, who was a, a man in England in, in World War II. And so we, what we see is these Screwtape encouraging Wormwood, well, try this kind of sentence and try this kind of thing. If you, if you can't lead him this way, well, then try this and, and employ this tactic and, and try to get him this way. And, oh, we'll, we'll talk to his mother's tempter and get her to coordinate with you. And, oh, now he's got a girlfriend, so we'll talk to her tempter. And, and so there's this whole interplay going on between Wormwood and Screwtape in which C.S. Lewis calls uh, the demons and tempters those names to, to try to get things, get them to do things for Satan. It's very interesting. It's very hard to read. I have the audio version, which is really wonderful. Um, but scary. <laughs> Even, you know, I was telling my kids, because we were listening to some of it the other day um, in the car, that even if he's half right in the conversations between Screwtape and Wormwood, it's scary. If these are the conversations that the enemy has in regards to us, it's scary. Moving on. Uh, in Genesis chapter 4, in verse 4, and I have it written here, so don't have to turn there, where we see the conflict between Cain and Abel, and I talked about this last Tuesday morning, I want to look at what God says to Cain about sin. Verse 4, Abel, on his, uh, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portion. So Abel brings uh, an appropriate sacrifice to the Lord. And the Lord had regard or respect for Abel and his offering. But Cain and his offering of the produce of the ground, he had no regard or respect. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to him, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, sin, this is important, if you do well, sin is crouching at, the, at your door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. And then in verse 8, Cain tells Abel this conversation, and then he kills him. <laughs> giving in to sin. So Cain was given the information. Okay, so here's this situation. You have to master sin in your life. And this is exactly what Judas would have had to have done. He would have had to have mastered this pull in his heart to betray the Lord Jesus. So Judas gave in. And I wonder, if he hadn't, who else would have done it? We don't know. We just don't know. But there, there, if it hadn't been him, it would have been somebody. So verse 3 in John chapter 13, get back to our text here. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going to God, that is an enormous verse that we could spend an entire month on, I think. Three, three things that Jesus knows here. One, that the Father had put all things into his hands. Two, he knew he came from the Father. And three, he knew that he was going back to the Father. The knowledge of who he was, whose he was, and what his destiny was gave him strength. It gave him power. And the first thing he does in that knowledge is serve. Okay? Knowing who we are in, in, in Christ, 
And I am a, I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. Knowing whose we are, I belong, you belong, to the creator of the universe, handpicked out of all people on earth. And my destiny is him. My destiny is heaven. So what do I have to worry about? Will, will I not be taken care of? Yeah. Does he know what he's doing? Yeah. Is he leading, leading me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake? Yeah. So what am I stressing out about? What am I freaking out about? <laughs> now, I'm saying that, you know, <laughs> my kids are back there going, <laughs> you know, because three of my kids are living in, living in a, a fifth wheel in the driveway. And we're at, we, Allison was out there sealing up windows last night. We're trying to figure out the propane and the heat and everything. And we're squeezing it. We're all squeezing in bedrooms. And, you know, it's, I'm not complaining. It's, these are opportunities for God to show his power. When nothing makes sense, when everything hurts, you know, you know, we're, we're, we're here we are in December, and this is going to be a tricky December for us. And we, have, we lost our brother-in-law last year, and Allison and I lost a child last December. This is a hard, hard Christmas for us. But God is on the throne. So I know whose I am in Christ. And knowing who I am in Christ gives me strength to take the next step and the one after that, and the one after that. That's why we, one of the reasons we celebrate, and we, we hurrah and clap hands when someone says, I have five months, or five days, or five years clean. Those are very real victories. And we could kind of go home on those statements alone. So we have to ask ourselves the questions, do we know who we are, and whose we are, and what our destiny is? Verse 4, having laid aside, I lost verse 4, where is it? Uh, verse 3. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. So some versions say he girded, some others say he clothed himself. It basically means he took a towel, a big long towel, and he wrapped it around his waist. And then to gird yourself means that you, they would take the part of the garment or tunic or whatever it was that was behind them, and they would pull it from under, like reach around their backside and pull it up, and they would tie it around their waist. Does it make sense? So they pull it around and tie it around their waist, so it looks like they're wearing shorts. Um, if you picture classic Egyptian uh, warriors, they're wearing like looks like they're wearing shorts, but it's, it's tight in the middle. This is girding. It's what they do. They, it, it means they're, they're putting on clothing to work. It's like rolling up your sleeves. He's, he's getting ready to work. There's a whole, I have a whole thing about the history of this, and it's unnecessary. Uh, Jesus, it just means he's, he's getting ready to do some work. And after that, well, the timetable of this, if you look at the other Gospels, in Luke chapter 22, verse 27, um, Jesus says during the supper, for who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. 
And in the Gospel of Luke, this takes place in the account of the Last Supper, during which the disciples are bickering about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. (laughs) Here they are, having their feet washed by the creator of the universe, and they're arguing about who's going to be the greater in the kingdom. Okay? Does that make, things begin to get a little clear? The the silliness of it. And you hear Jesus is washing their feet. And they're going, ah, I'm going to be greater than you. (laughs) And what is it about us that that desires acknowledgement and praise? What, What drives men to seek after power and authority? Here they are in the presence of ultimate power arguing about who will be the greatest in the kingdom. And, and this, I can't help it, but it reminds me of uh, the Avengers movie where Nick Fury asks Loki of Asgard if real power wants a magazine or something. Uh, real power is pouring out oneself to the benefit of others. You know, Jesus is called the meek uh, servant, the meek and mild. And, and meek doesn't mean, low, it doesn't mean weak and, pa- and powerless and, and stringing and golem-like. No, I mean... Meek in scripture means controlled strength. Okay? Yes, sir. Real power is pouring out oneself to the benefit of others. Okay? Yeah, strength under control. That is exactly what meek means. Strength under control. But when I'm I'm not a, a big into martial arts or anything. I, I you know, I I but I, I'm interested in people, and I, I've been very interested in, in Bruce Lee for a long time. Um, if you ever watch Bruce Lee movies, they're you know they're silly and, and crazy and stupid, um, and totally unrealistic. But those movies are based on some truth. You know, here was this skinny, scrawny guy who could knock you across the room with what is called a one-inch punch. He would, he would stand that close to you and somehow manage to pull all of the muscles in his entire body out. Boom. Shove a guy 12 feet away. Okay? All of that power coming out in one moment. And that's one of the things we see here with Jesus. He's got all the power in the whole universe in his hand. And he's washing their feet with it. Okay? Verse 5. After that, he poured water in the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and wash them with the towel with, with which he was girded. He was humble. He was contrite. He was serving. Verse 6. And then he came to Simon Peter. And this is where it gets kind of funny comes to Simon Peter and he says to him Peter says to him Lord are are you washing my feet notice that Peter being Peter he doesn't offer to wash Jesus' feet he doesn't offer to wash the other disciples feet he he just says are are you going to wash my feet none of the disciples in this in this occasion nobody tried to stop him and I find that interesting just kind of let him do it until, until he gets to Peter. And Peter's like, whoa, 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 hang on. What was running through their heads as Jesus got his, his hands dirty with the filth 
and the sweat and the dung and the sewage and the dust on the roads. I mean, did these guys have corns and warts and calluses and blisters and big old yellow long nasty toenails and, you know, and blisters, you know. And I, I struggle with the idea of Jesus seeing me as I am because I know what's in this heart of mine. And he's seeing their feet. He knows where they've been. They've been walking with him. In verse 7 here, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will. And we don't always understand what Jesus is doing. Actually, I think most of the time we don't have a clue what he's doing. Uh, most of my prayers are, ah, what are you doing? And, uh, I'm not even kidding. I mean, I, I want to know what you're doing so I can, I can prepare for it. I can be ready for it. I can study for it. I can, I can have a plan in place. I can, you know, do I need this or do I need to bring this? He doesn't tell us anything. He just does it. And, and we are along for the ride. It's like that going to whatever that holiday world. <laughs> what is that place? I always call it holiday world. Michigan's Adventure, you know, the roller coaster, click, 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 and then you're hanging, okay, you're looking over the edge. I mean, this is the Christian walk. Once we as Christ, once we become Christ followers, we are bathed and now only need daily foot washing to continue in service of the Lord. Uh, more often than not, sadly, we jump right back into the to the muck and mire of our sins, and we end up needing bathing once again. If we could just keep on the path of righteousness and avoid the sins of the world, we would just find ourselves better off and only needing a feet wash once in a while. Verse 8, Simon protests, never shall you wash my feet. I can see him standing up and, no, 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 making a big scene out of this. And I admire his passion, but he's wrong. Jesus responds, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. If I don't do this for you, you don't have a part in me. And then Peter goes nuts. Well, not just my feet, but also my hands and my head. Peter is, is the classic pendulum. If you know what a pendulum is, they're, they're really kind of neat things. Um, the Children's, Indiana, uh, Children's Museum in Indianapolis, before they got the big gigantic water clock, which is amazing and wonderful, they had a big pendulum on the floor. It was like 16 feet in diameter. It was uh, a cable that was attached to the ceiling, and there was a, a weight at the bottom with a point on it, and this thing would, would swing from one side to the next. And they had minutes around the, the ring, and as the pendulum got to the right minute, it would, it would swing wide enough in a 16-foot arc to knock over a peg. And that's when you knew the minute was. And so this pendulum swung like this, back and forth. And this is what Peter does. First he's like, no, don't wash my feet at all. And now he's like, well, wash everything. Yeah, this, he's, he, and he always does this. He either swings one, one far too, too far one way or, to, or too far the other. Um, and it's not until the disciples receive the Holy Spirit that Peter finds himself even healed, sent it, and useful to the Lord. And this is true for all of us today. You know, I, I swing hardcore on certain things, and I swing hardcore on other things and opposites, and, and it's the Holy Spirit that evens us out. Amen? 
verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. He knew. He knew it was in the hearts and minds of each of these guys. While he was doing this service for them, he knew that Peter would, betray, would, would deny him. He knew that Judas would betray him. The, the intimacy of this moment, and I don't mean like the you know, kissing and hugging intimacy, I'm talking about the intimacy, the brotherhood, the shield brother fellowship that these guys have experienced for the last few years of their lives, knowing each other, knowing their thoughts, and knowing their minds, and knowing their hearts and passions and, and dreams. You know, here Jesus is on, the, on his knees washing their feet. So after, so verse 12, when he had washed their feet, he taken back his garments and he sat down again. He begins to teach them. You call me teacher and Lord, and I say to you, oh, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Knowledge is great, okay? I can sit in a room in the dark and know there's a light, but if I don't do something about it, the light won't come on. You know, you can walk up to a door and stand there and, and well I know it's got a handle I know it swings this direction I have to do something about it to go through the door okay knowledge is wonderful but knowledge requires action it's nearly impossible for someone to, to argue who is greater than the other when you're washing someone's feet and, you know, we could speak metaphorically here, washing his feet for us. How does this translate to us now? Well, you know, shoveling the snow, putting salt down. That's serving. Cleaning the bathrooms is serving. Driving the car, driving the church bus, picking people up, that's serving. Teaching is serving. Running the sound board is serving. Children's ministry is serving. Preparing a meal, picking someone up. One of the side effects, in my experience, of long-term church attendance, and I'm talking 30, 40 years, is that it can produce pride in the soul that says, I have earned something through my length of attendance and amount of time. Um, I, would, you know, I would say then that if we think long-term attendance should award us a better parking spot for the car or our backsides, then, then that is the reward. If you think that attending church should get you a parking space, then there you go. That's it. If we don't learn servanthood during our long years of church service, then we haven't learned anything at all. To serve 
selflessly is to love another person. And the scripture tells us that a humble and contrite heart the Lord will not despise. One who thinks more highly of themselves than they ought cannot serve another very well. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Christianity is, is not a, a sitting still relationship. This is not um, one of these things where we can just kind of sit back and soak it all in. For a time, that's important. It's, it's, it's wonderful for a new believer to come to the Lord, and it's essential to sit and be taught the Word and to soak it in and to soak it in and to exchange hard rock music for Christian music. can't believe I just said that. Um, but there's hard rock Christian music, and that's fine. But, you know, to exchange things, you know, we come to Christ dirty and filthy and gross and covered in sin and broken and bleeding, and he begins a process of changing all that and fixing all that and healing all that. And at some point, there is an expectation of service. Diving in, getting your hands dirty, getting your feet dirty, making your back hurt a little bit. You know, we had some, we had a, that, that, there's that big gray tent looking thing out there. That was, that was fun to put together. <laughs> Jim, Jim's back there giggling. It was fun to put together. You know, there's, there's something about getting dirty for Jesus. Something about a, a day spent serving and coming home and your hands hurt, your back hurts. And, you got blisters from breaks and blisters from, from tearing down walls or blisters from building up walls. This is what we do in Christ. We tear down walls and we build up walls. This chapter is about two men, Judas and Jesus. One whom gives his life as a service and sacrifice for all mankind and one who throws away his life because his desire for revolution was not being met. Jesus lived to serve. Judas wanted to be served. Jesus is teaching about being example uh, of serving one another, and Judas is desperately hoping that Jesus will meet his desire to overthrow the bondage of Rome. You know, going back to verse 1, Jesus loved his disciples to the end, not only in word, Yes, I love my disciples, but indeed, he put feet to his words. And service in church oftentimes is ugly, painful, uncomfortable, and hard. And if it wasn't, we wouldn't learn anything from it. If it wasn't difficult, it wouldn't be a blessing. Think about a mother having birth to a child. Naturally, without the drugs and without the interventions, it is brutal. It is painful. The moment it happens, the moment that baby is born, and there it is, the pain is gone. The pain is not remembered any longer. Such is true with church service. It is also wonderfully rewarding 
and it can be a fountain of overflowing joy. But it really, what defi- what it all depends on our motives. If we hope to gain something by it, then it's not going to be fun. If we approach church service knowing that it's going to benefit other people, it becomes easier to do. And Jesus here is our example of it. You know, I spent, um, it was part of a, a, a leadership, I forget what they called it, uh, a program that Roger Ullman had, had done in Kalamazoo at the church there when this was 10 years ago. And uh, it was a, the idea was to have a group of people who are trained in all aspects of church service. And it was really good and wonderful. And I got to uh, put the guitar down for a little while and, and do children's ministry and lead children's worship and, and teach uh, Sunday morning classes for, for youth, you know, for the young kids, which was a lot of fun. Um, we just, w- you know, they, ha- they came to me and they said, here, here's all our study books. Do you w- which one do you want to do? And I, I said, you know, we'll just do the book of Psalms. <laughs> And so I sat with the book of Psalms and I taught, you know, I think it was Zoe's class. <laughs> so this would have been like seven, eight, nine-year-olds. We just went through the book of Psalms like, like adults. And they got it. It was wonderful. But part of this training thing that we were doing, it was, it was nine, I think it was nine months. And basically the, the Rogers' one rule was you can't say no to anything. So it was, hey, I need you to go outside and shovel. Okay, you know I need you to go to the store and get this, or I need you to sh- I need you to we, somebody called in this morning for children church ministry. I need you to go serve over there. I need you to do this or sweep the floor, vacuum the room, you know, alphabetize the books, alphabetize the you know the CD ministry by date and text. <laughs> anyway, you, you get the idea. But one of the things we did was we went to the Appleton uh, Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference, and basically th- this group of ten people or so. Our whole purpose for going there, all the way from Kalamazoo to Appleton, was to wash bathrooms. So people would go, all these adults and wonderful people, they would go to the seminar, and and while they're in this hour-long seminar, um, our job was to put on rubber gloves and and get nasty dirty and clean the bathroom. So when they came out of the bathroom, they had clean bathrooms. (laughs) And uh, that was the whole weekend. It was really neat. And I kind of wish at, at some point that people would stop saying, wow, thank you, thank you, wow, thank you. Because all of a sudden, at least in me, it, it wasn't just doing it. Now it was like, yeah, I'm going to wash the tables and uh, thank you. You know, because I, I began to enjoy the, 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 the pat on the back. You know, and once you start to enjoy the pat on the back, it kind of starts to lose its, its luster. So to serve selflessly, without an eye to reward, without an eye to a pat on the back. Sometimes the best service is one that nobody sees at all. You know? One sees it. And that is a 